Welcome to the Pilot's Journey Podcast, where we discuss aviation training and the steps involved in maintaining proficiency. Our goal with this podcast is to provide you with additional knowledge and maybe a new spin on topics related to your training. I'm Stuart Stevenson, a.k.a. Pilot Stu, a private pilot in North Dallas. And my name is Stuart Stoll, a.k.a. CFI Stu, a certified flight instructor in Fort Worth, Texas. With us today is Mark Klepper from AirPigs.com. He's the creator of the site, and he's also on an interesting project called the PVP, or the Project Volksplane. Welcome, Mark. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Why don't you give us a quick overview of what AirPigs is and how you were inspired to start that in the first place? All righty, sure. Well, AirPigs, and, and if people haven't noticed, uh, it's, it's spelled A-I-R-P-I-G-Z. And, uh, of course, there's a website at airpigs.com. And uh, it is a, what I call an aviation blogazine and podcast. It's, uh, it's a blog in the sense that all the data or, I mean, all the content really is coming from me. Uh, the perspective, it's all my point of view. Uh, there's no team yet to it. But it is a little more than just, um, you know, a little bit of commentary. I'm trying to really expand and create what a little, feels a little bit more like a magazine and even try to give it a visual look that feels a little bit more like um, traditional print. So that's where the blogazine idea comes from. And then, of course, podcasts. I have my own podcast that um, I've done uh, four uh, so far, and number five is just about to come out. So I've kind of been uh, testing the waters there. And then I also do some uh, videos from time to time. Uh, so that, again, creates a little more full atmosphere than sometimes you'll find with just a, a typical blog. Um, but anyway, I, uh, I actually, um, last year, just before Oshkosh, I was interested in trying to find a way to hopefully make money in the long run. Uh, with something that is graphically oriented and preferably uh, web oriented, and and I've been following an automotive, uh, what I would call again a blogazine type concept, something a little bigger and fuller, and for a couple of years, and was just really impressed with what they were doing. And I thought, you know, this would be really cool if we applied a lot of those concepts to an aviation blog. So uh, I, I at that time thought, well, what would I call it? And I was trying to come up with something that's a little quirky. In addition to, to not only just being memorable and unusual, one of the things I'm really interested in trying to do is find creative ways to connect with a younger audience with aviation. Uh, we've seen, uh, and quite honestly, I've kind of been on the sidelines of aviation for about the last 10 years, uh, certainly aware of it, and certainly my interest has been there, um, but I haven't been as active, certainly, as I've been just here in this last six months. And real quick to say that I was raised around aviation in a massive way. My dad was a pilot for United Airlines. He was a skydiver. He flew sailplanes um, and home-built airplanes. And I was around all of that since I was a young child all the way through uh, my mid-20s. And, in fact, spent many years living on a small airport in Indiana through my teen uh, years and into my 20s. And so uh, aviation is has really just it's been the foundation of my life when it comes to uh, what I've been about and what I know about. So it's been pretty easy for me to sort of step back into that life, even though I've been away from it for a while. So anyway, I, I have certainly seen that um, there's a lot of concern for the future of aviation at this point in time. And so I think one of the keys is we've got to find a way to connect with younger people and draw them into uh, what aviation is. And, you know, media has changed dramatically and the culture has changed dramatically in the last 15, 20 years. So I'm trying to do something that maybe comes across a little cooler, a little crazier um, in a commu- 
uh, communication style with air pigs, and that's where part of the name comes from then. Um, now, and usually when I explain to people, they really get it afterwards. Sometimes they're like, what the heck is with this air pig's name? But, yeah, I was, uh, was going to ask you. I was uh, <laughs> I was just talking to some family members. They're asking me, what do we have on our podcast tonight? And yeah. I, I said, well, yeah, we have Mark Clipper coming on for uh, airpigs.com. They're like, air pigs? Where did, where did that come from? Yeah, <laughs> is it something to do with pigs fly? Well, a little bit, but not so much that as to say, if you pig out on something, well, you can't get enough of it, right? I mean, everybody knows that. You know, if you're pigging out on something, well, if you're pigging out on the air, that means you love aviation. So it's, it's as simple as that. And then, so I had that basic concept, and then I came up with my primary tagline, which is hog wild about anything that flies. And that seemed to just absolutely pull it all together to where, you know, if you really love aviation, well, you're an air pig. And uh, the Z then, I used the Z specifically just to make it more memorable and to make it feel a little bit more like the, the culture and the way that essentially we've, we've destroyed the language here in the last 10 years uh, in our culture. But, you know, so I'm playing that game going right along with it. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, when you see it that way, and then if you see the logo, which I, I base uh, somewhat on the uh, movie from the 90s called The Rocketeer. And so this pig uh, has a very determined look on his face, and he's uh, flying through the sky like the Rocketeer did. And, and I think, you know, I, I've been, I was pretty confident that people would think that was a really cool logo. Now, it's funny, uh, my dad, who actually passed away back in January and uh, was, was, a real supportive of this project, but he didn't really get, I mean, he was almost 80 years old, and he didn't really get this whole idea of air pigs uh, to begin with, but he still was real supportive of it. And uh, so, But he, he had his doubts as to whether or not people would get it. But I through the Twitter, which I've been actually on twitter.com slash air pigs since probably about two months before I launched the site back in uh, December. So in the late fall, I was on Twitter, and uh, through that, I've had a, a lot of people have said, I absolutely love that logo. So I think I, I definitely succeeded in, uh, you know, capturing something that's unique and different and, and such. But it's basically just saying that, you know, we can't get enough of the world of aviation. That's what Air Pigs is all about. And so uh, uniquely, I have a really wide range of exposure because of, the, the skydiving, the sailplanes, I actually soloed in a sailplane on my 14th birthday. because You only have to be 14 for a glider. And so my actual licensed pilot career started as early as it possibly can here in America. And um, so and then I was around the commercial uh, airline world because of my dad. I was familiar with the corporate aviation and general aviation. And then even from a very young age, um, I was exposed to... Uh, home-built aircraft, uh, went up to Oshkosh, actually went to the last Rockford in 1969, and then in 1970, the event moved to Oshkosh, and I was there. Uh, I was at the Reno Air Races in 69 and 70, again, as a young kid with my dad, and really all of it's because my dad was interested in all this stuff, and I certainly was too, but I had this just huge blessing of being able to just be exposed to so much uh, because of him. So if you take that foundation and I've learned to do some graphic design over the years now. You put all that together, and AirPigs kind of falls into place and seems to kind of make sense. One of my favorite features is the caption contest that you run on Twitter, too. Yeah, well, well, and there's, there's two things I'm doing. There's Name the Plane, which actually runs on Twitter, and then the caption contest actually sits on AirPigs.com. 
I do make announcements of it on, on Twitter. Uh, and I actually currently have um, the caption contest on hold just because I'm trying to do this build an airplane thing and uh, with a very, very tight deadline. And it actually takes up a lot more time and energy to, to run that game. But, but real quick, there's the two things. One, on Twitter, we play Name the Plane game uh, from time to time. And uh, you can even follow that at uh, twitter.com slash name the plane. And where I put up a little snippet, a crop down picture um, on TwitPic, and people can then they go to that and they see it. And there's kind of a race to see who can find, uh, come up with the correct answer. And it has. It's been remarkably um, successful. I mean, people have really enjoyed it. And in fact, sometime probably in the next three months, I'm finally going to be able to launch a dedicated website called nametheplane.com where you'll be able to come in and just on your own, it won't be interactive with other people. It'll essentially be playing against, uh, um, you know, a framework that's built and would be fun and educational for people, and they can play it anytime they want. And uh, actually pretty full-featured, too. It's not just real simple. It's, it's pretty complex from a design standpoint. It'd be real easy to play. So I'm pretty excited about that. And then the caption contest put up a crazy picture of an airplane and uh, give people the opportunity to come up with captions, and then we have... Uh, a voting process at the end, and uh, yeah, people have really enjoyed that as well. It's, it's, you know, I think it's essential that we include as much fun as we can, really, in everything. But certainly, the world of aviation, you know, it, it, uh, I think it deserves uh, a ton of fun. So I just try to make sure that's part of the program. I had to say that how I got into your website was that caption contest through, Is that right? yeah, through Twitter, and uh, I've been going back ever since. That is a lot of fun. I laugh very hard at some of those captions and no uh, deal. oh my gosh creative yes. people out there yes there, there are. are yes there are <laughs> i haven't won one of them yet though but yeah, i hope yeah. i can't wait till it comes back because that's a lot of fun a good deal it will be coming back that's for sure but uh i've got uh i, I sort of have a tendency to fill my plate pretty full and right now it's it's getting pretty heavy <laughs> well the main reason for that seems to be the uh the project volksplain why don't you tell us a little uh-huh. bit about that? And um, that's an ambitious project. So why don't you describe that? Yeah. Well, again, I, I do have a pretty significant exposure to the home built airplane world, especially in, in my early years. And in fact, so much so that when I was in high school, uh, been my junior year, I'm pretty sure, I actually started building an airplane uh, on my own, not part of it as a school project, um, not with my dad because uh, he wasn't really as interested in the building side of things as I was. And uh, I started building what was called a Pober Pixie. And most people don't even know what that airplane is. It was technically designed by Paul Poberesny from the EAA. And it was designed to be a, an inexpensive airplane to operate. It was supposed to have a Volkswagen engine on it. It was a high wing, but tube, steel tube fuselage, a wood and fabric wing, uh, essentially an open cockpit, real simple little airplane. And uh, so I started building that, and I got it about 80% done. Um, and, and by the time I was out of high school, but uh, I uh, kind of I ran out of steam, which is pretty common on home built airplane projects. And I wound up selling it to a guy who had helped with some of the welding, and then he finished it and flew it. So anyway, um, I've been exposed to aviation or airplane building, I should say, for for many years. And I rebuilt a Satabria back in the '80s, and uh, rebuilt several sets of wings and such. So I do have you know, some hands-on experience and such, uh, more so than a guy who's never built an airplane before. Um, but the primary motivation for this was um, the AirPigs has been uh, a very underfunded project, 
And uh, because I've actually been going through the worst financial crisis of my life, me and, I don't know, two million other people in America. So I'm certainly not unique. But uh, in the midst of it, I've been trying to you know, bring this project uh, along. And uh, so one of the things I really wanted to do was to uh, get some significant exposure for the project up at Oshkosh. And I couldn't afford to have a booth or to do what would be traditional marketing up there. So I thought, man, if I could find a way to get somebody to work with me and we could paint up an airplane with an awesome Air Pigs paint job, that would be great. And I had a potential avenue for that, and I pursued it a little bit, and it just didn't work out. And that's kind of an unusual um, request, obviously. So I thought, well, you know, the only way I know to get an airplane up there is to build one. Because I couldn't afford to go buy an airplane, that's for sure. And and as it turns out, I can't really afford to build one either. So (laughs) I, I have a... A friend over in Illinois that has a airworthy Volkswagen engine, and that was what helped to steer me a little bit towards the Volksplane. But one thing I'd say about it is I'd always sort of look down on the Volksplane as being, uh, you know, homely and unimpressive and and such. And uh, I, I, for a couple of reasons, I can say that if you have nothing to fly at all, a Volksplane looks pretty stinking nice uh, compared to having nothing at all. So that first off was a pretty powerful motivator to get me to look another way. And then I started doing some research on the airplane. I don't know. I was looking at a variety of simple airplanes that would be cheap to build and easy to build because this the concept for this started only about four months away from Oshkosh, um, you know, a couple months ago. And so obviously if I was going to do it, it was going to have to be something exceedingly simple to do. And um, so the Volksplane, I started looking at it more closely, and I was just amazed at how simple that airframe really is. There are a bunch of things about it that make it much easier to build than a traditional airplane. It's pretty small to begin with. For example, the wing ribs, um, they're wooden, and it's a wooden wing with a you know major uh, main spar and then a rear spar, which are large wooden planks, and then wooden ribs, and then covered in fabric. But most aircraft, to keep the weight down as much as possible, they use a rib that's built up out of small pieces of spruce, usually maybe a quarter inch by a quarter inch. They're quite small, actually, and they're built up into sort of a, you know, a bridge truss. But they're sort of time-consuming to build. And, in fact, I built a set of ribs like that for that airplane back when I was in high school. And uh, so I was familiar with it. It's just, it is a lot of work. And on the Volksplane, they're actually cut out of quarter-inch plywood. And then you put some large holes in them to make them lighter. And the bottom line is they do come out heavier on the Volksplane, but in a fraction of the time. And so, again, right there is a good example of um, how you can, uh, you know, find ways uh, to make an airplane quicker and easier to build. And quite honestly, one of the things I think is really essential to that for anyone who's ever considering building an airplane is that my feeling is um, a huge part of building an airplane is really the battle inside your head, meaning it is such a massive project and it is so easy to get beat down by um, the, the magnitude of the project and the sometimes slow pace of it. You put all this work in, you know, and and you go back and you look at where you're at and you think, I can't believe I put all this effort and I still have an airplane that doesn't even look like an airplane yet. So that's a difficult thing. It's a huge hurdle for people to get over. So I think, especially as our culture now is at lightning fast speed, our attention spans are very short. And so there needs to be ways to um, build an airplane where you won't have to spend as much time. Um, and uh, and so 
if if you can spend four days starting the project and and already have a handful of wing ribs to look at, that's a very powerful motivator. It kind of keeps you moving along. So I'm just pretty passionate about trying to find creative ways to help people, um, you know, be encouraged in that way. So the Volksplane seemed like a really good way to go. So I ordered the set of plans for it and um, and had confirmed that I could borrow this engine from a, from a friend in Illinois, which would be by far the vast majority of the expense to build the airplane. And uh, so um, I uh, just went ahead and decided to get started and, and see what would happen. I came up with a paint job for it, which uh, I can provide you a graphic. I don't know if you might be uh, able to put that up on the website, but it shows it's pretty cute. Uh, certainly, I think, would attract a ton of attention up at Oshkosh. Uh, even though it's a simple and basic airplane, the, the paint scheme would really, you know, grab a lot of attention, which that that's the primary goal. And the secondary goal is part of what I've already explained is to try to be encouraging to people in these financial times to see that there are affordable and, quote, unquote, relatively easy ways to build an airplane. And in the hopes that maybe that would spur more people into taking a serious look at at, at building an airplane. Where are you in the project now? Well, I'm not nearly as far along as I had hoped, mostly um, still struggling um, pretty significantly financially with the project. But I have all of the wing ribs completely routed out. Let me say this real quick, that I spent about two months probably after I got the plans doing two things. One, studying the plans so that once it came time to actually build the airplane, I had a lot of it in my head already. And, and I think that is another good thing to do because if you – Start the project, and then you say, okay, I'm going to look at these plans, and I'm going to figure out how to build this airplane. Well, an awful lot of your time is spent looking, thinking, searching for answers, calling people, looking on the Internet, blah, 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 blah. And consequently, you don't feel like you're making any progress. So I did all that. I shouldn't say all of it, but I did a lot of that in advance to try to get myself as primed and prepped as possible so that once I started building, I could mostly just build the airplane. So... Um, I spent quite a bit of time in advance doing that, and then I also made some modifications to the airplane um, that I felt would make it a better airplane. Now, the airplane was originally designed in 1968, so it's been around for quite some time. And there's actually been a ton of this airplane built all over the world. Uh, I believe the information is that there's about a thousand of them flying, which is quite a bit for a home-built airplane. Um, and uh, but I'm not sure exactly what the popularity is right now with you know new projects being built, but I'm trying to do some things to it to bring it more into the uh, era that we live in today uh, and make it a little cuter and also make it maybe perform just a little bit better. So all the wing ribs are built. And then um, just this past weekend, I built the spar for the horizontal tail, which is kind of interesting on the uh, folks plane. It's a what we call a stabilator or a flying tail like a Cherokee has or um, the Cardinal, the Cessna Cardinal, um, if I'm not Dreaming this up, the Cardinal has a stabilator on it as well, it and um, a lot of airplanes do, actually. It's not as rare as we sometimes think, um, but a lot of people aren't even familiar with it. And basically what it means is there's no fixed surface and then a separate moving elevator. It's all one unit, and it all pivots pretty much about its uh, spar and its center of gravity. And uh, so it becomes a, it's a little bit simpler, and then uh, they typically have... Um, an anti-servo tab on them that moves in the opposite direction. I think I've got this right. It can be confusing sometimes with servo tabs and anti-servo tabs, but I'm pretty sure this would be considered an anti-servo tab. It moves in the opposite direction of the uh, tail, 
And what it does is it helps to create some feedback. It actually fights you a little bit, which gives it some pressure so that in the stick you actually get some feedback from the tail. Because obviously if you're thinking about a regular elevator, if it's hinged at its front and you're deflecting it into the air, obviously the, the air is fighting you back, and that's where you get the control forces that you have. Um, with a tail that's literally hanging on its center of gravity, there's, there's nothing to do that. And so that's where this tab comes in to give the pilot uh, some positive uh, feedback on the stick. Now, the other thing that's really interesting, well, okay, let me back up and say that the spar for the stabilizer or the stabilator is a built-up box. It's a fairly elaborate piece. Instead of just being a chunk of wood, there's a bunch of pieces to it. And I have that almost done. Uh, just started it over the weekend, and here it is Tuesday, and it's almost done. I also got all of the ribs routed out, uh, plotted, and a template built, and then routed them all out in plywood. Um, so I've got a really good start on the stabilator and made some progress even early this morning on the rudder, trying to get it ready in the same fashion, which is interesting because the rudder on the Volksplane is also this same configuration where there's no fixed piece. There's no fixed vertical fin and a separate rudder. It is all a moving piece. It also has a, a tab on it. And uh, so that's pretty unique. And what it does is that's another example where the Volksplane simplifies things because instead of having a left and right stabilizer to build and then either one elevator or even possibly a left and right elevator, there's just uh, the one piece. And then the same thing on the vertical surfaces. So it's pretty impressive the uh, thought that went into creating an airplane, you know, like the Volksplane to be as simple to build as possible. Um, now, also, I'll say, uh, and I, um, I picked up the engine about a week and a half ago. So I have the engine on a stand in the garage. And um, so that's a big part of the project for sure. And uh, uh, I'm hoping to be able to purchase the uh, main spars and rear spars here soon. And uh, I do have some fairly extensive experience uh, rebuilding wings, so I think I'd be able to put these wings together fairly quickly. Um, and my other hope is that um, the month of July, uh, at least three weeks in July, I should be able to go really fast and furious on the project. So there's still a chance I can pull it off. It's it's a it may be a slim chance, but so I don't after, give up. Easy. So after the uh, so after you. You uh, finish with the wings. Uh, what, what are you going to be working on next on the plane? Well, then the fuselage, which um, is really very, very simple. The, uh, the fuselage is not even very tall. You don't really sit um, down inside a folks' plane as much as you sort of sit on top of it. The fuselage at the cockpit area from the bottom of the airplane to essentially the sill area that um, you climb over to get in is only 18 inches tall. So um, that helps to keep the materials down and um, the effort down because you don't have a lot of big pieces. So the fuselage, I think, is about 16 feet long, and it has um, the longerons that people may not be familiar with, but typically in uh, like in a steel tube airplane, a wooden airplane, and even in aluminum airplanes, there's typically four primary members in the structure that run from the firewall in the corners, so to speak, if you look at it as being a rectangle up there, and they run then the length of the airplane on back to the tail. And they are the things that bulkheads or, in the case of a steel tube fuselage, the other tubing ties into all that. Uh, in the case of the Volksplane, those longerons are made out of spruce. And that's kind of interesting. The more you know about how airplanes are built, the more you shake your head as far as how small and light an <laughs> awful lot of the airplane is uh, in any airplane. 
Um, but uh, these longerons are only three-quarter inch by three-quarter inch. So they're just a little tiny stick, basically, but they run the full length of the fuselage. There's the four of them. But here's where the strength really comes from, then, is it is sheeted with plywood, just eighth-inch thick plywood. And that gives tremendous strength to everything. And um, and then there are some verticals uh, that run uh, back through the fuselage, but very very few. And it's all flat slab sides and such. So actually, the fuselage, in, in many respects, is extremely easy to build. And then in the cockpit area, where the main spar is, there's a bulkhead that's built up. And then behind the seat is another bulkhead where the rear spar attaches. And the wing struts attach into those same bulkheads. Those become really the big primary structural member that everything else in the airplane is sort of built around. So the fuselage will be the next project. And, and really, now I've not built the fuselage for a plane, obviously, so I don't know. But I think I might be pleasantly surprised that first off, there's only one of them as opposed to the wings where there's a left and a right. And uh, and then it's uh, the parts count is really not all that bad on it. It's pretty, pretty simple and straightforward. So it'll at least look like something in a hurry. Whether or not it can get done, that's another question. But you can, um, well, unfortunately, building an airplane is a little like building a house. You know how sometimes you'll you'll see a house go up and in a week's time it goes from, this foundation to the whole thing's up and framed. You're like, man, they're going to have that done. Well, you know, five months later, they have it done because all that detail work uh, really slows the project down. And it's a little deceiving. Uh, there's a saying in the home-built world that when you get the airplane uh, 90% done, you've only got 90% yet to go. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to need some specs on this airplane. If you have any, they um uh, what's what's the horsepower of the engine, and um, what do you think the useful load will be, and et cetera? Well, it's and it's a little marginal on the useful load, but uh, the engine it's designed for a Volkswagen. Obviously, that's where the Volkswagen name came from. Uh, but when it was originally designed, it was more common to have a 1600 cc or even a little bit smaller uh, displacement Volkswagen engines. The one that I'm borrowing is an 1850 cc and um, Back in the day, it was originally designed uh, or originally put together to go on a Sonar I-2 uh, airplane, which is a fairly fast Volkswagen-powered airplane. And uh, the claim back in the day was this was supposed to put out about 80 horsepower. Um, I think that might have been a little optimistic, but uh, the engine should be able to put out, I think, at least 70 horsepower, um, which for no heavier than the airplane is, uh, it ought to come in around 500 pounds empty weight. And um, I'm... It's hoping to have about um, a 300-pound useful load, so about 800 pounds um, gross weight uh, is what I'm shooting for anyway. And uh, and I weigh, um, I'm just a tad over 200 pounds. So uh, between me and fuel, there's just not a whole lot of anything left. But, uh, but you know, to have fun, all you need is you and some fuel. That's <laughs> so, right. Um that, and that's, you know, this airplane would be really, it, it doesn't excel at anything, um, but uh, other than maybe being hopefully easy and inexpensive to build, and it really does kind of excel there. But otherwise, it's just a pure fun-flying machine. It's open cockpit, and um, uh, it's a tail dragger, which to me, that's pretty important. I'm, I've, I was raised on tail draggers, and I just uh, I, I can't shake the idea that that's the way airplanes were meant to be. So I'm pretty happy about that. But it's also, it is a very easy airplane to fly. 
Um, unlike some tail draggers, it sits fairly flat on the ground. It doesn't have a really nose-high attitude, so you should be able to see over the nose real easy. Obviously, it doesn't have too much power to be a problem on, on takeoff. Um, and, uh, in fact, uh, it'll be interesting to see if uh, uh, it, it doesn't have the kind of performance like we see today out of airplanes uh, or even when they first hit the scene many years ago, like a, a, you know an Avid Flyer or Kit Fox, where uh, those airframes are very light and they get quite a bit of thrust out of a uh, two-stroke engine that's geared down, swinging a pretty big prop, and, and they've got really impressive performance. Um, folks playing is probably not going to climb like that by any means, but it should cruise 75, 80 miles an hour. And um, I've made a few alterations to the wing that I'm hoping uh, will increase its uh, rate of climb and its slow-flying uh, characteristics. And, in fact, it's really been interesting to see that there are several suppliers now of vortex generators for home-built airplanes. And more and more, you're seeing that really start to pop up on uh, on home-built airplanes. And I think that's pretty neat because um, it's pretty hard to deny that they really do allow the airplane to fly at noticeably high ang- higher angles of attack. And that can definitely translate into greater control and slower flight. And mm-hmm. so I'd like to think that that uh, might be something that could be easily incorporated into the airplane to improve performance. Is it a, is it a wood prop? The prop is wood, yep. And uh, and the Volkswagen engine, for people that don't know, turns backwards from our traditional aviation engines. Uh, and this particular one, and in fact, it's kind of funny. Um, the uh, the guy that I'm borrowing this from, he started building that Sonarai two way back when I was building that other airplane in high school. And I've been out of high school for quite a few years now. That so <laughs> was a while back. I was in the I graduated in '79. And uh, he had sort of stalled on that project, and uh, so I actually borrowed this engine once before for that Pober Pixie I was building and uh, hung it on the airframe, and it actually ran it several times. And uh, the thing that's kind of fun about it, because, again, I'm very old school about a lot of things, and I was definitely raised on propping airplanes, and mostly because a lot of the airplanes that we had available didn't even have starters, so you had to prop them. And the Volkswagen, uh, or this Volkswagen engine anyway, is not set up with a starter. So it would definitely be uh, hand-propped. And um, even we had a clip-wing cub when I was a teenager that I flew quite a bit, and uh, it did not have a starter. It had a 90-horse Continental engine on it. And um, we'd uh, sometimes you'd prop it with the airplane tied down because uh, obviously either somebody needs to be in the cockpit on the brakes and throttle or the airplane needs to be tied down. But there was a third method that is it's not recommended for people who don't have a lot of experience with propping. But you can uh, you can stand outside the airplane behind the propeller and you can reach in and, and grab uh, the throttle from that position. You're basically straddling the, la- the main landing gear leg on the Cub and you can reach to hit the mag switch. You can reach to grab the throttle, but you can also then just reach out with your right arm. And from the backside, you prop the airplane. And I did that a lot when I was uh, young, and I thought it was uh, – people thought it was very unsafe. I actually would make the argument it was extremely safe um, because, for one, you're straddling the gear leg, and you're not going to fall. You can hold the airplane back with your legs, and you can reach the throttle and the mag switch to solve any problems that would arise. So I thought it was extremely safe. But um, Anyway, the Volkswagen <laughs> would be done the same way, except you'd be on the other side of the airplane. You'd be on the left side of the airplane. Because uh, the um, when you're standing on the back side, you'd have to be on the left side to spin the prop in the other direction. You so. think uh, you'll be able to demonstrate that at Oshkosh? 
Uh, well, yeah, should be able to. Um, yeah. I want to. Uh, I want to see you do that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I definitely did prop that this exact same engine many times when I had it hanging on that other airplane I was building. And then when I ran out of steam and sold the airplane, the engine didn't go with it. I sent it back to the guy I was borrowing it from. So. <laughs> Um, so anyway, I have uh, already propped this engine, but it was a long time ago. Once you get the basic airframe done, what's involved in the licensing and certification for an airworthiness certificate? Yeah, there's. Uh, it's interesting because, uh, like I had mentioned earlier, I've sort of been out of things uh, in the detailed sense of aviation. So I did some research on this not too long ago because I thought, well, you know, one of the real big stumbling blocks could be the amount of time it takes to get the FAA to come out and look at the airplane prior to putting the fabric on, because back in the day, that's how it used to be, that there was the pre-cover inspection. So before you closed up any, you know, significant components, um, especially on a fabric airplane, it would be the the um, the wings and the fuselage. Now, let me real quick interject that that's another area where the Volksplane is pretty cool, because the fuselage has this plywood that is on all four sides, and consequently, you don't have to put fabric on the fuselage. You can just, uh, you know, seal, varnish the uh, wood, and then you can put paint right on top of that. So one less step actually there. So the only things that have to be covered are the wings and the tail. But anyway, my assumption was I was going to have to have a pre-cover inspection by the FAA to see the wings and the two tail surfaces prior to putting the fabric on. My research, though, indicated, and I think I really remembered this uh, from several years back, but it had sort of forgotten that they've done away with that requirement now. The only time the FAA looks at the airplane is prior to issuing the airworthiness certificate to it and giving it a very, very thorough inspection at that time. So that actually helps me because now I've only got one major inspection that needs to be accomplished prior to flying the airplane. And uh, now what they've done, and this is, I think, is a very good idea, is that that's not to say that the FAA doesn't think it's important for the airplane to be looked at prior to things being covered up and hidden. Absolutely the contrary. What they've done is they they expect that uh, you as the builder will get help from um, the premium source for home-built airplane information, of course, the Experimental Aircraft Association or the EAA. And there are um, you know, skilled and experienced people all over the country that are heavily involved in the EAA that are um, very capable of giving uh, advice and encouragement and, um, you know, helping a person to determine that the structures that they have built are indeed uh, safe and airworthy and and thus are prepared to be covered up. So, and I think that's actually a good idea because uh, I really think that uh, um, people that are directly affiliated with home-built aircraft are far more qualified than probably many of the people who've been inspecting airplanes for the uh, FAA. Um, now, I could be wrong about that. That's not to put down the FAA people in any way. That's not my intent. But people who are just totally immersed in the world of home-built aircraft probably have a broader knowledge and uh, more experience, you know, with structures. And uh, so anyway... I've, that's uh, a thing that's uh, going to have to be accomplished is prior to flight. It's going to have to have a thorough inspection by the FAA. I already do have the end number fully reserved for the airplane, which is 409 uh, Victor Papa, or VP for Volksplane. Um, technically, I don't really call the airplane a Volksplane so much because I have made quite a few modifications to it. So that's where I kind of came up with that Project VP, uh, which obviously the VP stands for Volksplane essentially. But, um, so it kind of has a, a little different name there. And then uh, 
one of the other things I found out here recently that uh, I was curious about, I thought, well, I wonder if I'm going to have to have an ELT in the airplane, because that's an expense that I'd really rather not deal with if I didn't have to. So I did some research, and uh, I guess I probably knew this at one time, but I didn't realize that single-place airplanes are not required to have an ELT. Right, um, right. And that and that means even a certified airplane, in my understanding anyway. If it only has one seat, it is exempt. You can have one if you want, but there's no, no ruling that you must have one. And uh, so that's that's kind of interesting, and at least uh, uh, helps me at this point in time being a single-seat aircraft, uh, not having to put that expense into it. Are you going to so, have an electrical system in this plane? Nope, there won't be any electrical system whatsoever. Um, the uh, engine has a, a casting that goes on the uh, back of the engine, and that casting helps to mount uh, a single slick magneto. Um, so this airplane even won't have a dual ignition system, which on one hand, you know, I think we've, we've kind of come to the place where we just all assume you have to have a dual ignition system. But really, modern technology uh, in uh, the way the ignition systems are designed, I, I don't, I, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't have. I think it's great that airplanes have dual ignition systems, and I think when it's feasible, it should be there, totally. No argument whatsoever. But I don't think it's crazy necessarily to fly on a single ignition system. And uh, so anyway, um, this air engine has a magneto, so the spark is created by the magneto itself. Um, and other than that, there's nothing on the airplane electrical that, that would need um, any uh, power. So, and, and with the advent uh, or the easy accessibility to handheld radios and such, there's always that option for me then. Although there's a fair chance that I would fly the airplane to Oshkosh in a purely no-radio situation. Um, at least this is another area I need to do some research on, but it's my understanding they still have a completely no-radio uh, approach procedure for Oshkosh. Um, they always did have, and that's how... Um, uh, several times, like when I flew that clip wing cub to Oshkosh and the breezy a couple times, um, the uh, no, radio, no radio procedure was uh, in effect. So, but uh, no um, no electrical system at all. And and I actually, again, think that's kind of cool. But there's another area where it saves um, cost and it saves time for this rather short time frame project. Oh, yeah, I imagine. And probably weight, too. <laughs> Yep, definitely, you know, and, and it, it's it's kind of funny, too, this, when you speak of weight. Um, there's Sometimes there's a real movement to cut every ounce or pound you can out of an airplane. And I remember back in the days of being around the skydiving world all the time, and there was a real big craze back in the 80s where they had some fabrics that were lighter weight, and some guys would even get a white parachute um, with the, the wing, you know, the parafoil-style parachutes, they get it with no color in it because it would be lighter because it didn't have the weight of the dye, you know, in the fabric. <laughs> and yet these guys w- would never think about maybe going on a diet, you right. know, and really losing eight pounds instead of being concerned about three ounces, you know, on their parachute rig. And it's a lot the same way with an airplane. Sometimes, you know, if we just lighten the, the load that's getting into it, that can, can help a bunch. But, you know, that is a, that's a really good point, though, that if – if you don't go adding a ton of junk in the airplane, and guys have a tendency to do this, usually the guy who designs the airplane, he's thinking weight conscious because he wants good performance and he keeps all the the unnecessary things off the airplane. Well, then guys buy the plans or the kits, and then they're thinking, hey, I want to put this, I want to put this, 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 this. And the next thing you know, they've added 80 pounds to the airplane. 
or in the case of a larger airplane, they've added 200 pounds to the airplane. And it's amazing how much that can uh, degrade your performance, you know, in every aspect. And uh, so I, I really like the idea of airplanes being you know, built in a, a little more of a stripped-down manner. Um, and, uh, you know, it'd be different if you're looking for an airplane that's going to be cross-country. And, well, sure, you're going to want a nice, comfortable interior. And But, you know, if you've got 200 horsepower or 300 horsepower in the nose, it's a little less of an issue when you're worried about a few extra pounds. An airplane that's, you know, marginally powered, like the Volkswagen would be, and certainly anywhere you can keep the weight down is a definite advantage. Well, do you think you're going to be able to make it by the deadline of Oshkosh? Well, it's really hard to say. I'm, um, you know, I guess there's no way to know, so I don't really think about it too much. I'm just pushing as hard as I'm able. I'm fighting the, the battle of time and the battle of money. In fact, um, and uh, definitely appreciate the support that I've received from uh, a good handful of people, including uh, uh, Pilot Stu here on uh, the Project VP t-shirt idea. For people who are interested in what I'm trying to do, one, to encourage people about, you know, simpler ways to build airplanes. Because in addition to just building the airplane, I'm trying to make it public with, I have a live webcam that's up from time to time, and I've been making some videos of the construction process, and I'm trying to share the experience with as many people as I can. Um, but, so what I've done is I came up with this idea where people can support the project by buying a Project VP um, special T-shirt. And it's an expensive T-shirt. It's a $50 T-shirt. So, yeah, it's not just, you know, you're not just getting the T-shirt. You're really helping to support the project so that I can have the financial resources to try to pull it off. And uh, I'm I'm behind where I thought I'd be on T-shirt sales at this point in time. So I am trying to um, encourage people to understand that uh, this is a pretty unique opportunity. And, and I realize a lot of people either just aren't able or wouldn't be interested in supporting. That's fine. But, um I, I did a poll actually on airpigs.com about probably six weeks ago, maybe it was eight weeks ago, to see if people would be willing to support because I knew that would be critical for me to be able to pull this off. And uh, 15, actually, I think it ended up at 16% of the people polled, and it was a little over 100 people um, said they would. So I think the people are out there. I've just been so busy, I haven't been able to connect. I think I've sold eight so far and really hoping to sell about 30 shirts. Um, for the project. They'll ship sometime in early July, is the plan. So if anyone's interested, uh, um, they can send me an email. Um, and there will be a, a post coming up soon, I think, that has even more information on it on airpigs.com. But they can send me an email at mcc at airpigs.com and get some info from me on how they can get in on, on supporting the project. And the primary reason to support, really, is for me to be able to expose air pigs to the entire Oshkosh going audience. And that would instantly put the airpigs.com website on the map um, because those are exactly the kind of people that this website is designed for from an aviation information standpoint. So if someone, you know, gets behind the project, what they're really doing is they're supporting the exposure for this kind of, I think, unique website. Um, so I really encourage people that are listening, if they're not familiar with AirPigs, you know, AirPigs.com, uh, A-I-R-P-I-G-Z.com. Check it out and see what you think of it and uh, kind of go from there. Well, that sounds great. Um, have you had any corporate sponsors or have you approached anyone about doing that? You know, the, the big question mark is if I can, uh, you know, get the airplane done. But I am interested in being able to put 
some corporate sponsorship on the airplane. So, yeah, definitely I'm open to that idea. Uh, or if there's somebody out there who just has a pile of money and they just don't know what to do with it, <laughs> if they just want to send me a just a, a bucket full, I don't need a pile, just a nice little bucket. <laughs> just a scoop here and there. <laughs> just a, even a scoop, you know. Um, two scoops of raisins works in Raisin Brand. I think it would work here. <laughs> and you can reach Mark Clipper at CFI Scoot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Is that right? <laughs> so, but uh, anyway, you know, even if I can't pull it off, um, I'm, you know, trying to generate a little bit of additional interest for air pigs. And, uh, you know, the, the, the hope would be that I'd still get the airplane done because I'd, I'd love to have an airplane to fly at this point in time. My financial situation has definitely kept that away from me. And uh, so this would be a great way for me to get uh, current, which, by the way, to mention one other thing, I need to go get a a buying a flight review as well then before I fly. But I think I would fly the airplane because it would fit within the light sport aircraft category. So I'd actually fly the airplane uh, as a sport pilot, even though I'm a licensed pilot, to be able to just bypass the medical. If I understand the rulings correctly on that, that, uh, that's what it would allow me to do there. Building an aircraft seems to me is to be a daunting task. Is that something you'd recommend for the average pilot? Well, it is a really it's an interesting experience. And on one hand, you know, I'd like to think that people who have never seriously considered building an airplane would consider it. But now, having said that, it's an extremely difficult task as well. And there's an awful lot of information that a person needs to have, and and you're far better off to expose yourself for quite a period of time, and that's one reason why Oshkosh is so fantastic, because you can go up there, and if you definitely spend a, a, a good handful of days, and your intent is not to just look at, you know, well, here's a shiny one here, and here's a big one over here. If you dig deeper than that, and you really you look at the exhibit areas to see, uh, you know, what kind of aircraft are out there for building, what, you know, obviously there's a very wide price range and a very wide performance range, and a very wide material range from, you know, wood to composite to aluminum. And, uh, you know, certain people are either going to relate to a certain style better or they're going to be better equipped with their skill set, the things that they are familiar with working with. Because the idea of this, this is a little bit my frustration, is that, that people who are selling airplanes, whether it be plans or kits, well, they're going to tell you typically, you know, oh, yeah, you know, an average guy can build this with just, you know, hand tools. Well, okay, let's get serious here. This is a huge, big project. And if you don't have any skills, then you're going to have to learn those skills. That's not to say you can't build an airplane, but you've got to develop those skills. Because if you don't, you're not going to build a safe airplane. And so I think it's, it's great for people to seriously look into building an airplane. But there's a lot you do need to know. And you need to take it extremely serious. And uh, But, again, Oshkosh is the place to go to get exposed to that. And with the forums and the workshops, stuff that you just never understood, well, how would you do this or how do they do that or how do you, you know, what's it like to, to weld or what's it like to rivet aluminum or what's it like to put fabric on a wing? All of that stuff is on display actively where you can put your hands in and touch this stuff and actually be instructed not in the big schooling sense where it's a classroom. I mean, you may only spend 30 minutes at that workshop, but you can talk to someone who has the skills. They can um, they can show you, and you can even do uh, the work as well, you know, and it's not going to be used on a real airplane, so it's no problem if you make a mistake or whatever. Fantastic way to learn. And those are the kinds of things that people need to build, not just for four days, let's say, at Oshkosh, 
But you need to be building those skills by building other things that don't fly and honing your skills, talking and looking at other projects and people and learning. The Internet now is a fantastic way to be able, you know, we didn't have that 20 years ago to be such an educational tool. It's a fabulous way to communicate with people, to get answers. And when it, when the, actually when the home built project becomes more of a social event, uh, and by that I mean you're communicating with people who are like-minded and hopefully many of them are better skilled than you are such that you can learn from them. It's, it be, it's actually a much easier project than, um, that maybe it was at one point in time. And uh, so, you know, I, I definitely think that people should seriously consider the possibility of building an airplane. But it isn't easy. You're not just going to snap your fingers, and you can't go into it with uh, with the idea that you don't really need to learn a lot, because you do. Everybody needs to learn a lot when they're building an airplane. But it's a fabulous experience. It's just an amazing, amazing experience. Do you have an active EAA chapter in your area? There's a couple in our area, and honestly, because I've kind of been out of it and, and the fact that the whole Project VP thing has been a, just a whirlwind of a concept and now I'm into it, um, I did, though, just uh, two weekends ago, I went to uh, up the road about 35 miles. I went to what I thought was going to be an EAA meeting, chapter meeting. It turned out it was actually their, their get-together, and there were several airplanes on display and, and such. So um, I'm probably going to join that chapter um, because even more so than I than I understood when I was younger, I, I understand the value of being part of a group of people, you know, one, because they can help you, but absolutely, number two, because you can help them or you can help others. And I think that's a, a really important part that for, for anybody who has knowledge and skills, um, I think they need to make themselves available to others. And that's not just uh, the aviation world. I just, you know, knowledge in general. Um, I think that uh, we should be absolutely willing to share that knowledge and to help others along as as they come alongside in whatever the endeavor is. As you think about flight testing phase, particularly with uh, some of the changes you made to the basic bulk plane design, uh, are you concerned about any of the safety precautions go along the way? It's it's interesting. I guess that's an area where I feel like. Um, I've maybe been been blessed in the sense that I like to see airplanes be able to do a lot and to think, you know, not at the total extremes, but to think outside the norm. But I like to be extremely cautious about things. Um, and uh, I, I don't know, for some reason, that just seems to be the way that I'm wired. And I know a lot of people aren't that way. A lot of people will stick their neck out. In fact, I mentioned this on some of my podcasts um, you know, even with the breezy um, that I did on my most recent podcast, that um, it's so important that when you do anything that, quote, unquote, sticks your neck out a little bit, well, the only wise way to do that is with, you know, not just one plan for what if, but maybe two or three plans for what if the worst thing that could happen happens in this situation. And being prepared for that dramatically reduces um, the risk of something really bad happening. It doesn't keep something bad from happening, but if you have the right mindset and you're prepared, you know, in fact, sometimes I think maybe the fact that engine failures aren't all that common is actually a negative for people because we, we tend to get the attitude of, well, the engine's never going to quit. Well, that's a really bad attitude to have in an airplane. Well, that's the, that's a hazardous attitude, isn't it? The, the uh, invulnerability. 
Yeah, yeah, and that and that relates to every aspect of flying, not just the engine quitting, but um, you know, there's that level of respect, and that typically comes with wisdom, and and oftentimes that comes with age, but not always. And then obviously you'll find young people, like for example, my uh, uh, podcast is coming out um, here really soon is with a young guy. He's only 26 years old, uh, and he's racing uh, an airplane at the Reno Air Races. And in talking to him now several times. I've been really impressed to see that here's a young guy who is pushing uh, himself in the world of aviation, but he's not doing it as a reckless cowboy. He uh, He's also more of an engineering-type individual, and so he has those disciplines, and he's being very methodical and cautious and has a plan for how he's going to do this. And and like you say, that's that's a little bit rare, but if a person wants to stay alive, and do things, uh, especially outside the norm within the world of aviation, it's essential. You have to have that kind of attitude. And I'd like to see, you know, more opportunity for people to to have maybe more fun than they've been having in airplanes, but at the exact same time be even safer than they were uh, prior to that. You know, by having a higher um, awareness for what can go wrong and then, it, it doesn't do you much good to just be aware that things can go wrong. You need to have a plan in your head at all times. What if? What am I going to do in this situation? So I just I think that's a, a thing that we can definitely try to you know reinforce more and more as we move forward in, in the world of aviation. Well, Mark, we'd like to thank you for joining us. And people can get in touch with you at airpigs.com, A-I-R-P-I-G-Z.com. And uh, your email address? Yeah, mcc at airpigs.com. And then also definitely encourage them to check me out on Twitter. It's pretty simple, twitter.com slash airpigs. And uh, probably like you guys, I was there before it got really big and popular here in the media. So I feel like I'm an old timer, even though I've only been there since last fall. But, But it's a fabulous tool. If you're not on Twitter, I've been so amazed at the aviation community that is within Twitter. It's fabulous. So I think if you're into airplanes and if you're into your computer at all and you're not on Twitter, I think you really need to get yourself an account and start following a ton of fun people and interacting. And it's it's just a great thing to do. That's That's exactly why we're talking right now, because Twitter brought us all together. Thank you for listening to the Pilot's Journey podcast. We'd love to hear your questions, suggestions, or experiences. And you can reach us at our website, www.pilotsjourneypodcast.com. Or you can leave us voicemail at 469-277-2359. You can also follow me as Pilot Stu, that's S-T-U, on Twitter or MyTransponder.com. You can reach me on Twitter and MyTransponder.com as well, at CFI Stu, that's S-T-E-W. And until next time, go fly and enjoy the journey. Please note that this podcast is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your own qualified flight instructor before attempting anything discussed in this podcast. Copyright 2009, Fully Stewed Productions.